Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 173. And today in the show, we're joined by Bernie Berenger, a DIY whitetail bow hunter, outdoor writer, and author. And we're talking public land, scrape hunting tactics, October lull tips, rut hunting strategies, and so much more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today in the show, we are joined by Bernie Berenger. He is an avid DIY whitetail bow hunter. He's an outdoor writer whose work has been published in North American Whitetail, Field and Stream, Whitetail Journal, and elsewhere. And he's the author of a book that I've really enjoyed called The Freelance Bowhunter, which is all about pulling off DIY deer hunting trips. And way back in 2014, when we first started the Wired Hunt podcast, me and Dan chatted with Bernie on the show um, all about that book and his ideas for doing those types of deer hunting trips, and we had a great time. It was a great conversation. We covered a lot of interesting stuff, but there was so much more that, that we didn't get to. And so now, three years later, or three and a half, or something like that years later, we finally have Bernie back with us, and I'm excited to be able to dive into you know, a whole lot more, many, many other topics that I think Bernie can speak to. Um I'm hoping we can hear about his, you know, even more about his public land hunting tactics. I think we're going to talk about the October lull, some of his other thoughts about hunting throughout the month of October. Um, I want to, I kind of want to walk through the season with him, hear more about what he's doing during the rut. Um, He's had some really impressive success already this year that I think we should talk about. Um, So we're going to dive into a lot. You know, we'll, we'll, as we do with a lot of our guests, I want to try to dissect Bernie as much as possible. Um, and then I think Dan will try to humiliate or embarrass or do something like that, you know, typically. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, before we do that, though, um, you, you heard that laughter over there. That's that's my man, Dan Johnson. If you're not familiar with Wired Hunt, if you're new to the show, we like to do this thing. We like to kind of prolong your wait before hearing from each of our guests each week. I, I guess you could call it maybe, maybe a preamble um, or a preface or a prologue, or some other word that starts with a P. I'm not sure, but what I'm trying to say is that myself 
and Mr. Dan Johnson, my co-host, we've got a few things that we need to cover first before we get into our topics with our guest. For instance, today, I'm excited to share that despite of all of our worries, all of our concerns, despite the doubters, Dan actually got to hunt during the month of October, ladies and gentlemen. I know. You hear that? <laughs> say that Say that one more time. It sounded really good. Dan Johnson hunted in October. <laughs> Reach. Congratulations, awesome. man. That's good. Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, <laughs> out of the news. blue, out of the blue, the wife says, so you're going to... You gonna hunt tonight, or it was like Saturday or Friday. So you gonna you gonna hunt Sunday night? And I said well, I hadn't planned on it. Why? Well, don't you need to? I'm like, yes. Man, is is this a is this a trick? Are you trying to <laughs> trap me? I mean, because I I've already agreed to basically not hunt for most of October. And she's like, well, you got a podcast about hunting. Well, why? you should probably go hunt. And I'm just like, you know what? You're right. (laughs) (laughs) Like it took me about an hour or two. You know, I, I threw my, uh, I threw my clothes in the, in my Ozonics bag. I, uh, I took a shower. I got my tree stand up and I hit the, I hit the woods, man. That is awesome. I'm very glad to hear it. I'm glad that all these vibes, like I've been, I've been trying to transmit my thoughts across <laughs> the states all the way to Sarah. I've been trying to infiltrate her sleep so that she would yeah. hear these words. You know, Dan has a hunting podcast. He needs to hunt. <laughs> Dan has a hunting podcast. He needs to hunt. So I'm glad it sunk in. and <laughs> She's got well, it. <laughs> she heard you. And hell, you didn't even have to send a check. There I you know. go. I, I, I promise I will get that check in the mail. I'm just a horrible procrastinator. But oh, you're going to get, you're gonna get your extra night of hunting. You check this out. I don't even know what this weekend's plans are, but there is even a chance that if I like, clean the house, <laughs> let my wife be alone without the kids for a little bit, I might be able to get out some point this weekend. Man, things have taken a turn towards the optimistic here on the Wired on podcast, and I like it. Right, right. Well, I tell you what, I basically just straight up lied to her. And told her that, you know, my podcast was doing so well. I mean, it's just a matter of time before I'm getting like million dollar deals. Oh, there you go. So, so she, so she thinks I'm, I'm, I'm cooler than I really am basically. Well, what do they say? Fake it till you make it. That's right. I think I got no problem doing that. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Do what you got to do, man. That's good. So how did I, how'd the first sit go? You know, it went really well. Um, and as we all know, first sits of the year, Mine was a run and gun. I I narrowed it down between two different locations. And I said to myself, okay, well, I'm going to go drive by both properties before they're, – they're relatively close to each other. And I'm going to go drive by both of them just to see – to get a visual observation of like it, are there crops in around there, what the deal is. I pulled into the drive of the very first place and – the entire fence row that I had used the previous year for access to get back in there. This is a cornfield this year. And as you all know, walking through a cornfield, if the rows are planted pretty tight, can be loud. And the fence row that I used to walk in the previous year was overgrown with cockaburs and those. I don't know what the, the scientific name for these plants are, but they're they have the the long strip with about 20 of these little 
small, small stickers on each side. And if you bump up against them, oh, they just yeah. stay on your clothes forever. Yeah, it's the worst. Yeah. So I saw that and I said, screw that. And I got into my truck and I just went to this, the other location. It was, uh, it's my buddy's farm where he owns like 15 acres, but it's just like the right 15 acres. Oh, yeah, the, the, the backyard spot, right? Yeah. The backyard spot is basically just thick overgrown bedding. And I walked in there and, um, I took my pack off and I set it down at the base of the tree that I wanted to hang my, uh, stand on. And I, have you ever heard like, um, a bedded deer like burp or like any type of gas? I've heard, I've heard coughs. Yeah. Well, I could hear this deer belching and like having, I don't know if it was farting or whatever, but (laughs) it was a deer and it was like, it had gas. And I could hear it while I'm setting up my tree stand. Are you, so are I you was, sure? Are you sure you weren't just like projecting your own situation onto this deer? <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I own that. I own that if it's me, dude. <laughs> okay. So, so there's a there's a bedded deer that's got the got the farts. Continue. Yep, yep, yep. So I got up into the tree, and I'm I got my. Can I just say stick. that? Can I just say that there's there's never been. A deer hunting story that has started like that, probably ever told ever? before. Well, hey. the deer had the farts, and I got in my tree stand. <laughs> hey, I got another story for you, and I'll tell it real quick. Uh-oh. Me and my <laughs> the only time my brother has ever been in a tree stand with me, he doesn't hunt. And one day I talked him into uh, coming with me, and it was a morning hunt. We got into this tree stand, and all of a sudden we hear this these weird noises coming from this CRP field, and here comes a doe with two yearlings, and she is literally farting so loud that me and my brother are laughing out loud, and we scare the deer away. <laughs> That's for real. That's a real story. Wow. Yeah. So anyway, back to <laughs> – <laughs> so, so anyway. You know, when Mark mentions preface – this is the portion of the show that you usually fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> For good reason, right? Right, right. So so anyway, I uh I I get my fourth uh... stick hung and I got my stand on my back and I'm getting ready to hang it and what do I see? Two does work their way right by me and my bow is on the ground. Of course. Of course. So I have to sit there. I pull out the cell phone, take a little bit of video of it, and uh, just chill out and watch nature and get calf cramps. Getting old, man. I know. Cramping up. Okay, so so did she did she end up seeing you or anything, or did they just move well, on and you were able to get set up and stuff? Well, in this really thick area, it's a whole bunch of honeysuckle, and you know how those plants are almost green all year round. They're kind of thick. And so she really couldn't see me because I was elevated, but I could see her. And, um, you know, these, these bushes are about four foot high and they're just real thick, real nasty. And so they, they were just kind of feeding in that area, uh, keeping an ear out. So I just continued to set up my tree stand. I got set up, I, I got my bow pulled up and, um, and then by the time that I got my bow and my pack up, they were, they had moved out of the area, out of range. And, uh, that was, those were the only two deer within range that night. Uh, however, a handful of deer did come out further down that bedding area, across the creek and went into a, uh, 
a food plot on the neighboring farm. It's just, I can't, I can't go that far without being on a different property. So, um, basically the stand that I set was because I didn't have a stand set there already this year and because I thought my buddy was going to sell that property. Oh. So I didn't, do, I didn't do any work. He decided he's going to wait till the spring to sell it. So that means I can go back in there. I can, uh, set up. And, uh, so basically what I did is I went in, I hung a rut stand, I hunted it and now I won't hunt it probably until the first week of November, last week of October. All right, cool. Well, multi-purpose set. That's right. That's right. That's awesome, man. Well, I'm glad to hear you got out there. Saw some deer. It's always good yeah. just to just to be in a tree on opening night. It's a good feeling. Oh, dude, it's one of those things. And I was talking to uh, a buddy from New York about this, and he was he's just like, dude, I didn't even care if I saw a deer, and I agreed with him. I was just like, man, this is what it's all about. You know, we always say this is what it's all about, and literally for me. There, my phone didn't ring. I, I shut it off. I kept it in my pocket. I sat. I watched leaves blow in the wind, listened to the sounds of nature, birds chirping, squirrels running around. Like, I, I needed that. Yeah, for sure. I'm glad you got it. Yeah. I'm glad you got it. And You got uh, a little blind time too, though. I did, yeah. Not tree stand time, but like you said, blind time. Um, and, you know, we talked last week about my game plan for this hunt. Right. Um, and I basically executed on that game plan, just like I talked about. So was going to try to take one stab at Holyfield here in the early season. Um, you know, the, the buck I've been after this is year number three. And, um, I felt really good about my chances of getting in there and, and pulling off a low impact hunt. I didn't necessarily think I had the very highest odds in the world of ever, of seeing him, but I thought there was some things in my favor. Um, you know, it was the first night of the season. So these deer hadn't been pressured. Um, it was cooler than it had been earlier in the week. It had been like mid-80s, and now it was now down to the mid-60s, so that was pretty good. Even though this wasn't like the, the first day or two after the front, this was like four days after the front. Still decent. Yeah. Um, it was the first south wind after four or five days of north winds, which is something that Mark Drury always talks about as being a trigger sometimes. So I haven't necessarily seen that myself, but I thought in the back of my mind, well, that's one more little thing, one more tally in the in the pro column. Um there was that early rising moon, which supposedly is another one of those things that maybe you can see a little bit more movement. So there's all these little things that made me think, hey, you know, it's possible. And I was going to hunt this spot that traditionally Holyfield showed up a lot. Um, so long story short, kind of like you did, I, I accessed through a standing cornfield and then was able to get about perpendicular, just about adjacent to where this ground blind is. I dropped down to a creek, walk a creek right to the back of this blind and hop right into it. So it's like a awesome access route to get in there without spooking anything and i had a southeast wind which is like the perfect wind for hunting this area i put this blind in there specifically for a south or southeast wind um because essentially there's this food plot system out in front of me and then there's really good bedding to the east and the southeast and then to the west and kind of almost that whole 180 degrees in front of me um, is, is good bedding or good food. And that's where the deer typically come from. The only place that I would have any danger of spooking deer would be if they came from the look, the direction that I walked in from, from the road, from the standing cornfield, but there's, there's nothing else over. There's no timber, there's no bedding, there's no anything. Um, so I felt, you know, of course there's never a sure thing, but I felt pretty darn good about the fact I could get in here, have a decent chance at seeing him and be able to get out without spooking a bunch of deer. So the night starts out. 
couple does are feeding, gets towards prime time. Now it's like four does, then it's six does, then it's 12 does, then it's 15 does. Deer are just piling in. And now it's like the last half hour of daylight. I'm feeling pretty good about it. There's a lot of deer moving. Um, I'm getting to that point. I'm like, hey, you know, something could happen. You know, this is this is what I was hoping would be happening, but I I, I hadn't been seeing this on my trail camera. Um, I, later, I found out my, my placement of that trail camera, I think, is just not showing me much of what's going on in this little area. Um, There's a lot more happening that I wasn't able to to see, so I'm feeling good. And then with like 25 minutes left of daylight, maybe just when you're waiting for the big boy to step in, right over my back right shoulder. <laughs> and uh, the worst sound in the world as a hunter, the one place I couldn't have him come from, one single doe came from. While there's all these deer in the food plot, happily hanging out, calm as could be. And what's cool is with this ground blind, this hay bale blind, they really don't give one rip about it. I mean, there's deer three yeah. yards away from me feeding. Like I could almost reach out my bow and touch them there that close, and just no clue I was there. Um, so it stunk that, that deer blew and then the whole food plot cleared out. Everything went running. So I'm sitting there pissed. Darkness is coming. It's, it's basically dark now. Um, I'm getting ready to leave and then I see deer start piling back in. So it's just at the end of daylight and now deer start piling back into the food plot and some bucks come to the food plot. And I got bucks sparring in front of me. There's bucks fighting in the food plot in front of me, a bunch more deer coming. I'm like, well, geez, now what? Um, and then Back over my right shoulder, blew the field out again. So I was just devastated. (laughs) Like my low impact hunt, my one time in that was supposed to be in and out, not going to spook any deer. Um, Of course, um, my overconfidence bit me in the butt and um, educated some deer there, unfortunately. Uh, I was able to get out after that fine but not the first night set I was hoping for. Um, but on the bright side, I ended up getting trail camera pictures of Holyfield in that very food plot that night at 3 a.m. He showed up on trail camera, on my wireless trail camera, just moseying through. So my, my hope is that he wasn't in the area when uh, when all the commotion was going down, and, and hopefully that didn't bother him at all. Now I'm planning on staying out of there for several weeks now, letting everything calm back down. And, and I have been able to see that there's still deer feeding out there in daylight on my trail cam. So, so they're okay. I don't think it was a, a horribly negative situation. It could have been worse. Uh, at least he wasn't, you know, spooked off the food plot. So now I'm just going to wait and see, wait for later in the season when conditions are better for going there and there after him. But it was fun to be out there. It was just a beautiful night and got to see a lot of deer. So I love that. And uh, I'm heading up to do some northern Michigan deer hunting in a few days, which should be fun too. So the season continues. So you think that uh, he caught your scent at all while he was in that ground blind? Or do you think, you know, he had no idea you were there? Oh, well, I've got no idea. I mean, he, he, I don't think, I guess I don't know this, but. I don't think he was in the area when those deer winded me um, because he didn't show up on trail camera until eight hours later. Um, Now, hypothetically, he could have been in the distance. Maybe he was heading that way, and then the deer cleared the field, and then he headed off somewhere else and came back later tonight. That's possible. Um, You never know. But my hope is that 
you know, since he showed up so late on trial camera, that that's because he was somewhere else earlier in the night. Um, now, yes, I mean, there's always a chance that, you know, he could walk through that standing cornfield and catch my scent where I walked through there or something. Um, so I don't know, but I do know that two does, at least two does winded me cause they, they blew at me that night. Um, but the other deer definitely didn't win me. Um, so that's good. So even though I bumped, you know, 15 deer blew out of that field, they didn't win me. The wind, it wasn't like the wind was blowing to all those deer. It was just this one single deer that came up behind me that scared everything else away. So my hope is that a couple deer winded me. Most of these deer just heard the blow, got out of there, but, uh, you know, weren't too, too negatively impacted. And, and based on what I'm seeing so far, you know, it's moving back towards normal behavior in that location. And, uh, I'm just going to give it time. And once we get to October, the twenties of October, I think, um, things should be in good shape and hopefully get a good cold front around that time period that he likes to start moving again in daylight. And, uh, then I can slip back into that area or one of the handful of other spots I have prepared and give it a go. So you think, uh, since then has he uh, showed back up on camera? Well, so this was what today's Wednesday. So he yeah. showed up Monday morning at 3am. Um, and that was the only picture I've got of him there. Okay. But I'm, I, yeah, I, I've only gotten trail camera pictures of him four different times in the last 30 days. So he's not, gotcha. he's not been as frequent of a visitor as he's been in the past. Um, my hope is that, um, that might be changing now that the hunting pressure is increasing all around this area. I, there's been a bunch of hunters out. I've been seeing a lot of cars in the surrounding properties and stuff. So the pressure is ramping up significantly around me, and um, I'm hoping that uh, this will give him another reason to spend more time on me because pressure won't be there until one special night, which will hopefully be the night that he shows up underneath my tree stand. Nice. So, well, I'm pulling for you, bud. Thank you, man. I'm uh, going to do some public land hunting here over the next couple of weeks, do the northern Michigan thing over the next couple of weeks. Um, bide my time in some of these other secondary properties I've got permission on too. So that's the game plan. Um, and man, I, I wanted to talk today about another topic, but I, I just don't think we've got time to talk about it. Um, so we're gonna have to do this maybe next week. Um, cause yesterday I went to a CWD symposium uh, here in Michigan. That. Yeah. And so this is like, this is the first national, uh, get together of CWD chronic wasting disease experts from all across the country and even internationally. This is the first time this event has been held since 2008, an event like this since 2008. So this is a really big deal. Some of the absolute most respected um, top researchers and professors and scientists that are looking into what's happening here, as well as representatives from, from many, many of the states that are being impacted by CWD right now and all sorts of other stakeholders were all there uh, yesterday. And so I got to hear some very interesting discussions, seminars, and talks um, on the topic of chronic wasting disease. Specifically, yesterday, the talk was all about the science of CWD right now. So what yeah. do we know? Um, and then today at the seminar, I unfortunately couldn't attend today, but today's seminar was talking about, okay, what's the management response to that? So today they were going to be hearing from people from all these different state agencies from across the country that are dealing with it and hearing about what they're doing, why they're doing it, how it's working. Um, so I'm hopefully going to talk to some other people that, that were there today to hear about what they heard. Um, 
but there's lots of interesting stuff to share. I think it's worth, um, re, you know, reiterating and talking through some of the basics of just making sure that people really do understand the facts around CWD because there's just a tremendous amount of misinformation out there. Um, so I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk about some of the things that I was reminded of and that were reiterated to me. And then there were a few things that even though I've, I've followed this quite closely over the years, there were some things that, that I didn't even know about that I learned. So um, I guess I guess I say all that as a teaser. I think next week, let's try to carve out like 10 minutes during our, our prologue to talk about that because I think it's something that uh, it is it is really a serious, important issue. Yeah, very um, important. And I think sometimes we like to try to push it aside or think, oh, no, this isn't something we need to worry about. Or it's just a foregone conclusion. There's nothing we can do about it. I just want to hunt. Um, yeah. It's well, especially thing. this time of year, right? Right. I mean, everybody's thinking about me, myself, and my hunting. And then, you know, there's bigger. There's bigger fish to fry. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. So, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that till next episode. Um, but – It'll be a conversation that I think is an important one, an important one for everyone to to make sure we're keeping top of mind. So with that said, um, let's take a pause here to thank our partners at Sika Gear, hear our Sika story, and then we'll bring Bernie on and we'll talk October lull, we'll talk trail cams and rubs and scrapes and grunt and bucks and all that good fun stuff that we always like to talk about. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. For this week's Sick of Story, we're joined by Bo Martonic, who tells us about a spring turkey hunt where everything went right. It was last spring in Pennsylvania when uh, the temperatures were a lot lower than normal for, for a spring turkey hunt. I um, left my house early in the morning, well, well before light. I wanted to get a quick hunt in before work. And as, as I started crossing the valley, I heard some gobbles coming across the other ridge line. I hurried up, went down through the creek bottom. It was very windy and cold, about 38 degrees, and quite a bit of rain was coming down at this time, so it allowed me to get in pretty close to the, the roosted gobblers. As soon as it got light enough for, the, for them to come out of the roost, I gave a few soft calls with my, my grandpa's homemade call, and they flew down came over the ridge and uh, the big Tom gave me a good 35 yard shot and put him down, ran up to him, grabbed a hold of him and couldn't believe what I had. My, my biggest turkey to date, inch and a half spurs and a 10 and a half inch beard. And it was one of the craziest and quickest hunts that I was able to make it to work on time. On Bo's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's core lightweight base layers. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, we are back now with Bernie Berenger. Welcome back to the show, Bernie. Thank you. Yeah, we, we were just chatting before we started recording that it's been more than three years now since our first episode, um, but we've gotten some some good feedback on that one from way back in the archives, so, so I'm glad we can do this again, Bernie. And and thanks for making the time to do it. How, how have you been? Because I know you are a traveling hunter. You're a traveling guy. You've been on the road a lot. How have things been going so far this year? Uh, boy, it's been great. Uh, I've had some pretty good years here. Killed some bucks in Kansas and um, and a couple other states. Uh, um, 
I killed one in Iowa last time I drew a tag and then I drew a tag there again this year. So I'm going to Iowa again this year. Um, my, I shot one of my best bucks, uh, ever, um, on September 8th, um, just, uh, three weeks ago. So that was in Manitoba. And, uh, so yeah, things are going good. I'm, I'm shooting a lot of bears too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Are you, uh, are you bear hunting? You're doing fall bear hunting right now or spring bears? Or are you doing, you doing both? Um, I do both spring and fall. I, I write a column for bear hunting magazine. So I do at least two bear hunts a year. And, and, uh, so that's, that's my other passion besides whitetails. That's awesome. I went on my first black bear hunt this spring and, uh, had a lot of fun. We didn't, we didn't have any luck, but it was just nice to be out in the woods in, uh, I guess it was May and, uh, out there chasing something. So, so I think that'll definitely be something I'll yeah. do again in the future. Yeah, you bet. It's a lot of fun. It's kind of addictive and I can, I can hook you up if you want a little better hunt where you're, uh, I can put you into some places where you're guaranteed to see some bears. So we'll talk afterwards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll take Now that's what it's all about. <laughs> contacts. Yeah. Contacts. I'll take all the help I can get. I like, uh, I, I, I enjoy learning as much as I possibly can about these critters. So I'm sure I'll be chasing them again here soon, but, uh, but, but, you know, we like to keep things a little whitetail focused here. So you said you had a good hunt in September. How did that go? Well, it was, it was really interesting. This is a buck that I hunted last year and I, uh, this buck is a really nice 10 pointer. Um, he's either four or five years old and I green scored him at 161. So wow. he's a real, he's a dandy. And, uh, the, the hunt came about in an interesting way because it kind of goes back to the bear hunt. So I've been bear hunting with an outfitter up in Manitoba and, uh, brought him a ton of business through my writings and so forth. And so one, uh, one year I was just, when I was there in the fall, the late August, I'm like, man, you got some pretty nice bucks coming out in these hay fields here. Have you ever considered uh, offering early season bow hunts? And he's like, well, no, I, you know, I do sell some, um, some rifle hunts in November, but I said, man, I sure would like to come up here and hunt in, uh, um, you know, the end of August and then into the, the season opens the first, uh, first uh, Monday in September. And so last year, he's like, why don't you come up, kind of be a guinea pig and just see what you think. And, you know, if it, lo if it looks like it's going to work, then I'll start marketing some early season bow hunts. Well, um, I hunted up there for seven days and I saw a lot of nice bucks. I ended up killing a real nice nine pointer, about 135 inch. But this one 10 pointer that I'd been hunting, he was about a 150 class last year and I mean, I saw him most every day. He would come out in the hayfield over here when I'd be over there. And, uh, you know, I I got lots of trail camera pictures of him, laid eyes on him many, many times. And then he, uh, one time, I'm actually on the right trail, and he he's coming down the trail. He's about 40 yards away, and he's just moving so slow. And along comes, uh, I didn't realize it, but some does and fawns had worked out into the hayfield on the other side of me while I was looking away. So when he goes behind a bush, I reach up to take my bow off the hanger and they, and the does and fawns saw it and they blew and snorted yeah. and stomped. And so I named him lucky because he just always seemed to have, I mean, it was, it was so close so many times I had him at 50 yards a couple of times, but that's just a little bit outside of my range for bow hunt. And, and, uh, so I went back again this year and on the second day, he, he comes out clear on the other end of the same hay field comes clear on the other end of the hayfield, and there's a bunch of does standing around down by me, and he just walks right up to 25 yards, and I shot him. And I'm like, well, 
Wow. I guess his luck ran out. <laughs> uh, you know. So, uh, but that was that was a beautiful deer, and it, it's interesting because in Manitoba, you um, you know you have to go through an outfitter to get a deer tag. You have to actually buy your tag through an outfitter, which means normally you got to pay for a whitetail hunt. And um, so I was really fortunate. I just kind of lucked onto a basically a free hunt, other than just having to buy a three hundred dollar tag and killed a really nice buck and i cannot wait to get back up there and do it again <laughs> if he'll allow me to yeah i bet so i'm curious you were describing especially last year when you were first targeting this deer you mentioned that you were getting him on camera and then seeing him on different areas of these fields what was like and i asked this because i've hunted that time of year too and for my own selfish reasons i've kind of bounced around in a similar situation what was your kind of plan like how, what was your your approach to trying to narrow things down on this buck as you were going through that seven day hunt. And then this year, I guess, what did you learn from last year and then applied it to getting that kill? Um, yeah, the, the key that I, I think that I learned over time with this buck using the cameras and the visuals was trying to determine where he was betting and coming into the fields based on wind direction and weather patterns and so forth. And, you know, over time with both the cameras and, and when I saw him in person, you know, I sort of narrowed down what he tended to do based, um, you know, if the wind was from one direction, he tended to use a trail on the other side of the field. And it had more to do, and this is interesting because it uh, it wasn't with so much when the wind direction, like in the evening when I was hunting, but what the wind direction was like in the mornings when he was going to his bedding area seemed to determine more where he would bed than where he would come into the, you know, then he'd come into the field. And sometimes he'd come into the field with the wind at his back, but he was coming from a bedding area where when the wind determined that he would go there in the morning rather than the afternoon wind didn't make as much difference mm-hmm. as the morning wind did. So that's, I learned something from that that I hadn't really thought of before. That's a great point. I think that's something that I've heard people talk about in the past and then it's kind of fallen off the radar for me, but it makes all the sense in the world. If you're, we talk a lot about this and I think a lot of serious hunters have, have found that where bucks tend to bed many times is wind dependent. So they're bedding in a certain place because of a certain wind direction. But I think we sometimes plan on, all right, we're going for an evening hunt. And then we look at the wind for that time period that we're going to hunt. And we don't even think about the fact that it could be different in the morning, which would have been when that, deer is making that decision um so that's a great reminder um and it explains too why some people are surprised you know they're seeing a buck enter a field with a wind to his back like you mentioned and they think oh oh, i don't know why he would do that seems counterintuitive but to your point it's probably because where he's coming from is more dependent on that morning wind than the evening wind so glad you mentioned that glad you mentioned that so he he uh you said he was in the 160s last year or this year after you killed him he ended up being no he was i i estimated him at 150 last year and then you know i i have hardly measured any of the bucks that i've shot but this one i knew when i showed people pictures they're going to say what's that score so i figured i better put a tape to it so i just green scored him at at one at 161 so but i estimated he was 150 last year and he probably was maybe between 150 and 155 last year so he's a little bigger this year yeah that's a it's a beauty of a buck that's awesome well congrats again on that um so so we're we're now in october and i recently read an article of yours i think it was on um oh gosh i think it's your bucks bulls and bears website is that right 
Sure. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. it was about how you like to hunt through the month of October and kind of specifically the October lull, but it covered, you know, all four weeks of October. And I liked, I liked kind of how you shared your perspective there broken down week by week. Um, so if I can bother you to, to recant that description that you've already written up on the web, can you share with us what your progression looks like throughout the month of October um, and how your hunting strategy is typically changing as we progress? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's interesting how so many people really think the, uh, the month of October is just a time to just wait, <laughs> you know, forget it. Let's just wait for November. And, um, you know, the first week in October can be a really tough time because the, uh, um, the, the bachelor groups are broken up and, um, you know, the patterns, uh, we're, we're having a hard time figuring out where the deer are because, um, uh, you know, all throughout the month of September, these deer are sort of just changing in their food sources and their patterns. And, um, you know, you'll be watching on your cameras and you'll see these deer in the fields in the evenings and stuff like that, starting in late August and right through the middle of September. And all of a sudden they're gone, you know, and then, you know, the end of September, first of October, all of a sudden you've got a buck on your camera and you go, I haven't seen where this come from. Well, he came from somebody else, you know, they're wondering where he is. And, uh, so the first week in October, it's pretty much all about the food. Um, if you can find, um, acorns, hazelnuts, stuff like that in my area, that's kind of what they're eating on. If there's still some dry, some corn in the field, um, you know, they're, they're still in somewhat of a pattern. It's just that you'll have to find these deer again and, and you have to move quickly because the patterns are changing. Um, I like hunting October because, um, the first week in October, especially the weather's nice. And usually here we've had a frost, so we don't have much about mosquitoes and stuff like that. But then, uh, um, as the second week of October, uh, wears on, then the, it's getting colder. So the deer are seeking out the high carb foods like corn and stuff like that. When the, if they're standing corns left that they're, that's a real magnet for them. Um, sometimes they're picking up corn that's been harvested and so forth. And, um, so that the, you know, second week is not a bad time to hunt either. And, um, by the third week in October, now you're starting to see a lot of scrapes and rubs that are pretty active rather than, you know, there's, there's, you start seeing scrapes and rubs, you know, at the end of August and even as the velvet comes off, but by the third week in October, the bucks are really paying attention to them. And, um, so that's when I start paying attention to them too. And also that's when the effectiveness of calling and rattling is starting to work. Um, and then by the fourth week in October, then, you know, calling and rattling is at its peak. That's, that's, it's the best last week in October, first week in November. I would even give the edge to the last week in October for, uh, for calling and rattling. Um, you know, that's the best time of the year also to hunt scrapes and rubs because the bucks are visiting them consistently. And, um, you know, something, another issue with, uh, um, with scrapes that a lot of people don't think about and, um, the, you know, and, it's kind of complicated, but you know, there's been several studies done that bucks, um, don't visit scrapes in the daylight. I mean, you've probably read these scientists. Mm -hmm. What they do is they put a camera at the scrape and they, and then they say, well, we got, you know, 80 some percent of the pictures of mature bucks that we got were at night. Yeah. And, um, well, 
one thing that they that they're not noticing about this is the fact that they're only putting a camera right at the scrape and they so bucks are checking scrapes during the day at this time but they're just not walking right into them because most of your scrapes if you think about it they're on a power line cutter a road two track on the edge of a field or something like that and these mature bucks don't like to expose themselves to open areas during the daylight so they'll whenever can they can they'll stay 30 40 yards downwind of the scrape in cover and they'll just check the scrape without walking right up to it now if there's something good in the scrape if there's fresh doe pee or if you use a good lure or something like that um you can uh you know you can hunt right over these scrapes and bring these bucks right in but um so don't completely discount hunting scrapes during the daylight because there's that last week in october in fact halloween's kind of famous for uh you know for killing bucks over sign so so at that time period is do you prioritize scrapes so much that during that last week of october that's that's one of the main areas that you're actually hunting over is specifically in a spot because of a scrape yeah i'm looking for areas that are all torn up and uh, i'm you know by the last week in october i'm not spending a lot of time worrying about beds and food and stuff like that um you know i'm looking for sign that that those bucks you know the testosterone's rising they're going to be checking those scrapes and and uh tear if you find an area that's got six or eight scrapes and a bunch of rubs and stuff like that it's it's definitely worth spending the afternoon there during that last week in october so one of the things that i feel like a lot of people do talk about when when we're on this topic of scrapes is that the places that you will see that daytime activity are usually going to be the scrapes some people refer to like primary scrape areas or something like that being these places back in the cover so the scrapes that are on the field edge don't focus on those try to find these areas of uh, that are all tore up but the ones that are back secluded somewhat is that the way you're looking at things too or are you even taking advantage of field edge scrapes because you still think that they're they're coming downwind of it 30 or 40 yards into the cover checking on those field edge scrapes somewhere yeah i if the wind is right that you can get downwind of one of those scrapes that's on a field edge, um, they're good places to hunt. You know, if you can have the wind blowing from you or from the scrape to you and uh, getting a tree up there, the bucks will, they'll check them and then they'll make a hook. They'll kind of circle around in a half circle. If, the, if they smell something they like, then they'll kind of circle around and try to quarter into the wind with the you know kind of the wind on the flat of their face so it's in one nostril basically and they'll approach the scrapes that way so to keep that in mind uh, but I, I i would say if i had to choose between the two i'd take a, an area back in the cover more that's t- closer to the bedding area that's all torn up because you're more likely to encounter them in the daylight if you're closer to the bedding area but uh, these these areas where they're all tore up on the edge of the fields they shouldn't be completely overlooked all right, fair enough. Have you seen? Have you seen? You know, for from all your years uh, of being in a tree stand and and just watching deer movement in general, is there a time where you know we're talking about hunting scrapes right now, where these deer really start to get up on their feet in daylight, uh, whether that's getting up early or coming to back to bed late. Um, yeah, I, I would say the last week in October uh, here in the upper Midwest uh, is when you start seeing that. And then by, uh, you know, the first week in November, then you start seeing more of the uh, chasing, 
more so, you know, and so then the scrapes will work, but they're, you know, you can concentrate more on the doe bedding areas and where the does are feeding in the evening because the bucks are going to be, they're starting, those are starting to smell pretty good, you know, around the 1st of November. So those bucks are going to be sniffing them out. Yeah. If you, to answer your question, the last week in October, absolutely. Dan, were you, were you asking about like time of year or were you more, you were asking more other factors that change it? Well, not necessarily factors. I mean, in regards to hunting actual scrapes, right? That's something that I don't do a lot of. So just because I don't, for me, I'm not seeing a lot of enough movement during the daylight. You know, I'm not necessarily going right into the bedroom in late October. Maybe if there is a, um, maybe if there is a, uh, I guess a cold front coming, uh, for, for an evening hunt, I guess, but I do like hunting, uh, late October, the morning hunt back in a bedroom where the deer might be coming later back to that bedroom or maybe scent checking. So I guess my question was, um, there, you know, what time of year, whether it's like the 24th, 28th, you know, 29th are, are you typically seeing these deer not chasing yet, but getting up on their feet a little earlier because, you know, there's that smell and that there's that smell in the air. Like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta start getting ready. Gotcha. And I think, and I think think, Bernie, you you would go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, I think your previous answer then answers that, right? That last week in October. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would like to mention the mornings too, though. That's a, um, I would say the closer you get to November, the better it gets. But as far as the morning goes, when they're primarily on a feeding to bedding pattern, then they'll trickle back in. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to hunt mornings on feeding to bedding patterns without bumping deer, particularly if they're hunting in open fields and, you know, they'll start trickling back in well before daylight sometimes. And, and, uh, you know, you might not encounter the deer and you can, it's, it's hard not to, uh, spook them, um, or, you know, intrude, but the closer you get to November 1st, the more the bucks stay out a little later. So that's kind of an answer to your question yeah. that, uh, the effectiveness of morning hunting, um, gets better as you approach the 1st of November. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that's something that, that we, that I think we've all probably seen too. It seems to be that that tends to be the case. Um, you mentioned a little bit ago, though, um, continuing here on the, the topic of scrapes, about how when they do scent check these scrapes many times, you know, if there's something good in there, like some fresh, real doe urine or a lure of some type, they might come in closer to check it out. Um, I've never really personally used a whole lot of lures, um, scent lures. When I, was, when I was young, I tried a bunch, and then more recently, I've kind of tapered away from that. Is that something that you found useful um, in your own hunts? And if so, you know, what actually is worth using? I, you know, I'm not big on just like sticking up a wick with some lure on it or something like that. But I've used a lot more scrape. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> I've used a lot more scrape drippers over the years and uh, found them to be pretty effective. They really seem to... Uh, they really draw the deer into the scrape to get a photo of them, first of all. And then secondly, I, I've seen bucks that were downwind checking those scrapes and they would, uh, they would actually circle around and just come into the scrape because it's got some lure in it. 
Okay. So like, uh, how much are you doing that? I mean, do you, do you go out and set a dripper on every scrape of yours that, or every scrape that's near a tree stand that you might hunt in late October? Or do you just have, you know, or do you go out the day you're hunting and you know, there's a scrape nearby, you walk in there, you hang the dripper that day. How are you actually, you know, utilizing them? I'll, I just put out a scrape dripper today. So I'm, you know, I'm having, I have them out there quite a bit. And the ones where I know I'm going to be hunting, I, I want to start sweetening those scrapes up as soon as it, it looks like it's going to be one of those places where I'm actually going to spend some, you know, significant amount of time. I'm going to go to work on them right away. Okay. Have you, have you tried preorbital gland scents and lures at all? That's been something we've talked to a lot of people about. And I've started trying some of that this year. Um, results TBD. Uh, have you seen anything with those? I have not, but I'm really intrigued by the horizontal rubs and that type of thing. In yeah. fact, the scrape dripper that I put out today, um, I put it right next to a, a branch that is a horizontal branch on a jack pine tree that for some reason a buck started rubbing. And so I, I, I just put a scrape dripper right there, put a camera on it, and I actually shined up the branch that he's been rubbing on with my pocket knife a little bit. So it has some visual attraction. Hmm. So, I mean, it's more of an experiment than, any, than anything in this case, but. Interesting. You know. Do, do rubs factor in reg, regular rubs factor a whole lot into, I know you mentioned sign a little bit ago, but specifically a rub, something you're really using to key in on where you're moving around those October, October stands, or is that kind of tertiary data? Um, that's kind of peripheral stuff, I guess. I just know that there's bucks there using the, you know, if, if they're freshening the rubs and the size of the trees has a fair amount to do with it. You know, they, they always say that big bucks will rub small trees too, but small bucks generally don't rub big trees, mm -hmm. you know, in, in a general sense. And so I'm, uh, you know, the, that's kind of peripheral stuff that just gives me more confidence in the spot, I guess, more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's kind of exactly what I've found too. Dan, do you, do you pay much attention to rubs anymore other than just kind of yeah. that type of thing that Bernie just mentioned? Yeah, I do from the fact that that means that there is a, there has been a, a buck there, right? A, yeah. And it's if it's like, confirmation. I, I, yeah, I agree with him, you know, little deer don't make big rubs. So yes, I, I take into consideration, I put it into a metal note and, you know, you know, we always talk about going through that mental checklist before we go to sit a stand location or before we hang a tree stand location in a specific area. And that may play into whether or not I go that direction based off of, you know, it could be the tipping point saying, well, there is a big rub from this year in that area. Gotcha. Yeah, that, mm -hmm. that seems fair. So speaking of October still, um, everybody likes to talk about the quote-unquote October lull, right? Mm -hmm. This, this mid-October lull. Um, Bernie, do you, do you think that's a real thing? Do you find that to be more of just a media sensation or a label that we're putting on something that maybe is human-influenced um, more so than deer? What are your thoughts there? Well, I have had a hard time shooting bucks in October, in the middle of October. Um, maybe I'm just inept. I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, it could, it could be just me, 
but I, it seems to me like it's harder to, uh, you know, to, to shoot mature bucks, especially during that time, just because their movement seems to be erratic. And I don't know that it's maybe that I just haven't figured it out. I mean, there's some people that kill big bucks. I, I know guys that have killed booners consistently in October and, uh, you know, maybe I just haven't figured it out or I'm not in the right places. I'm not hunting the right places. Now where I live, you know, a three-year-old buck is an anomaly here in central Minnesota where, you know, we have a deer season, a rifle season that starts the first weekend in November and 80% of the bucks are shot when they're a year and a half old. So, you know, I'm just typically not going to travel to a state where, um, I'm on a bow hunting road trip the middle of October just because it's, uh, it's a tough time. And, uh, you know, if there's a lull, I don't know what causes it or, um, you know, there's people that know more about it than I do. Put it that way. I haven't figured out the code. I haven't broke the code at all. Yeah, fair enough. It definitely seems like, you know, from everything I've seen and heard, studies show that buck movement does actually increase throughout the month of October, but that doesn't mean that daylight activity that the average hunter sees doesn't go down, you know, due to things like increased hunting pressure probably or due to changing food sources probably or leaves dropping and so the available security cover for deer changes so all of a sudden all these things happen and so deer habits change which i think throws a lot of people for a loop that then looks like that lull um yeah that's a lot of what like i kind of hypothesize but so so given then what you just said though bernie that this time of year is a little bit tougher for for most people for you too maybe what are you actually doing this year throughout these next couple of weeks, are you still going to go after it? Are you going to lay back? What's, what's on your actual itinerary and plans for the next two, three weeks? Well, I have a doe tag to fill here. And then, uh, you know, I've, I've got some cameras out and I'm checking cameras and just kind of, if the, if something pops up that looks like a pattern, then I'll go after a buck. Um, you know, I've, uh, I, I, I drew a Iowa bow tag this year, so I'm headed down there about Halloween and uh, I have got a buddy down in southeast Iowa where I hunt down there, and I sent him six cameras, and he just got them out last weekend, including a cell phone camera. I've got one of the covert Blackhawks Verizon cameras, mm-hmm. and it's already texting me pictures of deer here in Minnesota of deer in Iowa where I'm going to be hunting. So it awesome. almost seems unfair. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I'm getting texts in the evenings, and so far I haven't seen a shooter buck. There was pretty, one pretty decent eight-pointer on there last night, and uh, he made a mock scrape and put this camera on it in a bedding area. And, uh, he'll, he'll go back in there about two weeks, uh, probably and, and move it. But, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. And, and it's nice to have somebody on the ground that can help with stuff like that. And I'll mostly be hunting public land down there. Um, I do have permission on one piece of property that's adjacent to a public land that I, I did get permission on one piece of property but mostly it's public land and and the nice thing is i hunted it down in that area in 2014 so i was also able to learn the area quite a bit when i go back it's really helpful you know to have some history and understand a little bit about the travel patterns and and uh things like that so i'm, I'm pretty excited about it i always love going to iowa i i usually apply for two or three states a year um and, but when I think I'm going to draw Iowa, I didn't apply for Kansas this year because I just want to focus all my attention. I got 700 and some dollars invested in this tag, yeah, you know, right. I'm going to make the most of it. So 
Um, when I'm done in Iowa, if it, if it happens fairly quickly there, then I'll probably go to either Nebraska or Missouri and, uh, you know, spend a week or 10 days in the second spot with an over the counter tag. So then, so most of October then is dedicated to hunting locally there in Minnesota then, right? If yeah. Hunt, yep. Yeah. You know, yeah, I, I hunt, I hunt kind of sporadically this time of the year yep. and it's just more, and you know, I'm checking cameras and I'm, a, I had a dozen deer in my little food plot behind my house here last night. I just have five acres, but it's surrounded by a big state park where there's no hunting. So oh, I got nice. lots of deer. It's just that I don't have very many big bucks, but, uh, uh, ever so often one comes through. And, and if I see that they're, you know, if I got one that's coming into the food plot, I'm going to jump right on it and try to get out there and get him shot before he disappears again. And that's what they do in October is they're, you know, you'll see one, you might get him for on camera for two nights or observe him in a field. And then who knows where he goes. You can't find him again. Yeah. All right, folks. I think this is a good point for us to take a quick break to hear from our partners at whitetail properties and our producer spencer newharth will take it from here this week with whitetail properties we are joined by andrew schultz a land specialist out of illinois and andrew is going to be telling us about the best ways to improve habitat on a small piece of ground there are lots of things a land manager can do in order to help themselves kill bigger deer on a smaller property. And uh, probably the most important of those things, in my opinion, would be creating funnels and pinch points. And uh, one way to do that is through hinge cuts. If it's a smaller property, uh, it's assumed that it might not necessarily hold a whole lot of deer, but hopefully they're passing through there. And by creating good funnels um, and ambush sites, you can have lots of success by catching them traveling through the property. If the property does lay in a way in which you can create some small food plots, um, that could help attract deer as well. And then obviously um, keeping less pressure on the property. A small property can be easily pressured, especially if you get too many hunters out there trying to hunt it. So pay careful attention to the wind, pay attention to uh, your entrance and exit to and from the stand and try and keep that pressure to a minimum. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Andrew currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Schultz. That's S-C-H-U-L-T-Z. So you mentioned that you're, you know, checking trail cameras during this time of year, maybe on that little spot, or I don't know if you've got other places there in Minnesota too that you've got cameras. But I'm just kind of curious because I always battle with this in my own head it's okay, even if I'm staying out of an area and not hunting it for a period of time, but I want to keep tabs on it with the trail cameras, I've, I've kind of convinced myself that if I go in there in midday on an ATV in easy-to-access locations, I'm not going into bedding areas. It's just like field edge spot or something like that. If I do that you know, once a week or every other week or something, I'm having a low impact, and that's okay. Um, I'm curious to hear, number one, do you agree with that? And then number two, what are you personally doing when it comes to monitoring trail cameras in a low-impact way this month? I I would say yes, I agree with that, but there's two things that I would add to that. Number, I started using a fat tire, electric fat tire bike. Oh, my goodness, has that. It's incredible. You oh, can yeah? cover so much ground so fast. You're not leaving any scent and all that. It's that. It's quiet. The deer look at you like, what the heck are you doing? You know, I mean, right. you literally ride by sometimes 25, 30 yards from them and they stare and watch you go by on these, on these bikes. 
that's a game changer as far as I'm concerned. The other thing is for bedding areas and things like that, I like to check the cameras either during or right before a rain, um, which pretty much washes your impact away. So if, you know, if I look like uh, we got some rain coming in, I can look at the radar. I'm going to, I need to check a camera. I'm going to run out there and do it right then. Um, so, but yeah, I would, I would agree with you. It's, you're trying to keep your impact down yeah. and, uh, avoid, uh, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to these dog on trail cameras. I probably hunt trail cameras too much. Uh, I'll admit <laughs> that, but you know, it's like a sport in itself and, uh, it's hard not to go check them sometimes or you're, you're all excited about it. And, but you got to be patient, wait for the right time to get out there and get the information gathered up without hurting your chances. Yeah. Very true. I know, uh, I know we, we all, probably all hunters battle with that same challenge because they are addicting. They are so much fun, but you got to think, okay, what's more important getting a picture or getting an arrow in one. <laughs> so I'm always trying to tell myself yeah. that like, chill out, Mark, you want to get an arrow in one even more than you want that pick. Um, but man, these, these cell phone cameras to your point earlier, that's a really nice tool because you can, you can get your pictures. It's like you, you can, what do they say? Have your cake and eat it too, or whatever. That's kind of the deal with cell phone cameras. So yep. they're very helpful. I have a completely yeah, and, and random. I'm, I'm not kidding. I, well, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm really not kidding about this quiet cat bike too. Um, I'm not, it's just shocking how much difference that that has made for me and how much ground I can cover. And, uh, uh you know, I, I think these are going to be a big thing. And when I first saw them, I thought, come on, you know, that bike's three grand and who's going to do that? What, how much impact can it really have? You know, but when I got one and started using it, it was just like a whole new world opened up to me. It's amazing for scouting, for just riding through the woods and scouting and, and riding around a field edge looking at scrapes and rubs and trails and stuff like that. It's a whole new world. I'm not kidding you. Yeah, man. They, you they, a- uh, they look, they look pretty cool. I, I don't know if I'm ready to drop the cash on it myself, but if one mysteriously showed up on my doorstep, I wouldn't complain. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you need to do a bunch of podcasts and trade for one or something. Yeah. Well, like a hint, hint, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Mark has word out. <laughs> They sound cool. I know. Uh, what yeah. were you going to say though, Dan? Oh, I well, I had two questions off that. The first one was: Are are those electric bikes legal on public ground? Uh, most public ground, they are legal if they're under seven hundred and fifty watts. Now, Quiet Cat makes two of a seven fifty and a thousand, and I use the seven fifty because most states uh, it's not considered a motorized vehicle unless it's over seven hundred fifty watts. Gotcha. So it's basically a bicycle. And yeah. now they have three ways you can use them. You can pedal them just like a regular bike, or you can just, you know, the quiet cat has a, like a throttle, like a motorcycle. And you just drive it like a motorcycle, or you can use a pedal assist, which is what I use most of the time. And that's, uh, you can just set how much assist you want and you just pedal and it helps, and it helps push you. And I mean, you can go up steep hills. I pulled a big buck on a, cart you know right behind I, I tied a cart behind the bike and just rode it right up a big steep hill it's like crazy how good it works hmm. nice nice so my next question was you know this was this is kind of off subject but when you when you are pulling a tag in southeast iowa you know those don't come every year unless what? your name is dan johnson unless your name is dan johnson you live there like me but <laughs> 
you know, you're an out, you're a non-resident and you're not pulling that tag every year. How much time are you going to dedicate or budget to Iowa when, you know, and you hunt all these other locations? Yeah, I'm because I don't draw an Iowa tag that often. I'm going to make it my number one priority and I'm just going to go there and I'm going to work hard until I either get a buck or decide that my odds of getting a buck are are too low to make it worth staying. That might be seven or 10 days or whatever it takes, you know, being an outdoor writer, I've got a flexible schedule. I keep my whole first half of November completely open. So if it takes a whole first half of November, I might end up doing, I'm staying with my buddy. He's expecting me to stay a week or so. I might have to get a motel after the second <laughs> week or something, you know, if he gets really tired of me, but, uh, um, you know, I'm going to prioritize that. And then whatever's left, like I said, you know, there's over the counter States that I like, like Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota. Those are three that I really like to hunt as a second choice. So I can just go buy an over the counter tag and and uh, you know i've hunted all three of them before so i've got spots that i know somewhat and i could jump right in and be hunting it'll take me 24 hours after i get there probably to really walk it out you know look at movements and feeding patterns and see where the deer are bedding and then get a stand up and you know i usually don't hunt the first day i usually just scout the first day but after you've been there uh a time or two then the scouting uh is not as necessary so you can get in a stand a lot sooner so did you did you hunt? I think you had said it was 2014 when you hunted down there last. Um, did you kill a buck on that trip? I did kill a buck. It wasn't really the buck I wanted, but it's kind of a crazy story because uh, my wife's mother died while I was down there, and uh, and you know she grew up. We both grew up in Iowa, and I don't know why I moved to Minnesota. I guess because I was in the fishing business here when I did. <laughs> but um, but so you know we were going to have a funeral. And, uh, then I was going to go to Kansas from there. Well, the morning that I'm trying to decide how this is going to all work, me to get to a funeral and everything, a 120 inch buck walks up and stands there broadside. I went, well, this is an answer to my question. So I shot it and, uh, and quartered it up, put it in coolers, went to the funeral and my wife took it home from the funeral. She met me there, took it home from the funeral. I went to Kansas. Wow. So it just worked out, you know, and, uh, I had better bucks like on camera than that, but uh, it's just there's a lot of other factors than just shooting the best buck you can find. And in that case, uh, the whole uh, death of her mother kind of threw a monkey wrench into it. But I was satisfied with that buck, considering you know it was a three year old buck, and you know going to another state and shooting a three year old buck is harder than a lot of people realize. Yeah, for sure. What about what about this year? What's your goal for this year? I'm going to be a little more picky. I think, uh, um, you know, I have some history there now and, uh, we'll see how bad the EHD has been and also what shows up on camera here. Um, when I start seeing pictures from the cameras that my friend John put out, um, we'll, we'll start seeing what happens and then I'll have a better idea. But once you have an inventory of the deer, then you, you kind of know what you can expect. If there's three or 450 inches on camera, I'm going to be really, really selective, you know, and, and try to get one of them. And if there's only one and a bunch of one thirties, then I might say, well, one of those one thirties is probably going to be good enough if he walks by. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I like to think that, uh, um, when I'm in a, uh, in a state far from home, 
you know, a three to four year old buck in the 130 to 140 ranges on uh, public land. That's kind of about what you can expect if you really work hard. Yeah. Gotcha. So what's your game plan? So you're going to show up there. You said probably like late October, early November, most likely. Um, what could you describe like your hypothetical week, first week game plan might look like? Yeah, my the first day I'm going to spend on that bike and uh, just really scout out the areas that I've known have been good in the past and see what I can find for sign and so forth. Um, you know, go through the trail camera pictures and, and really analyze what things look like. Um, and when I say sign, I'm not just talking deer sign. I'm talking human sign, too, because I want to know where the hunting pressure is coming from. Public land, you, you're patterning other hunters as well as patterning deer, you know what I'm saying? So, uh you know, I, I just want to get a feel for the lay of the land, and I'm going to spend at least a day, day and a half, and I'm going to try to get at least two stands up before I actually hunt because I've made the mistake in the past to find a really good spot and I put up a stand and I hunt it in the evening, and then it gets dark, and all of a sudden I'm going back to the motel going, man, this is a terrible stand for in the morning. I don't have any place to hunt in the morning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I want to get two stands up before I actually get in one. I want a morning spot and an evening spot or a, or at least two stands for two different wind directions. So I'm, I'm pretty adamant about, um, you know, really scouting things out before I actually start to, to hunt, because when I get in a stand, I want to have the confidence that I'm in the right spot. Otherwise you get fidgety and you're thinking maybe I should be over here or over there. And the only way to know that you have confidence that you're in the right spot is by thorough scouting. So that's my priority is really heavy scouting and then hunt. And then you're, I go into a lot of detail on that in my book, the freelance bow hunter book. I, I cover that in a lot more detail. Yeah. I remember I really, I really did enjoy that book and I liked your perspective on, on how you go about transitioning from that, you know, scouting to then kind of observation stands and then kind of adjusting each time. Um, I mean that, that I've, that's something I've definitely adopted to my own style of hunting too. When I've done some of these public land hunts and it, it definitely seems to work. Um, has anything because because we talked about this piece of your of your strategy a lot, you know, our first time we chatted on the podcast, we kind of dove into your whole public land philosophy, this whole you know kind of game plan that you go through on most of your public land hunts. So if that was if that was 2014 that I think that we had that conversation, now it's 2017. Has anything changed? Have you learned something new that has that has changed how you approach these hunts at all, at least when it comes to the public land side of things in the last, you know, two, three years, is there anything pretty profound that you now say, ah, I'm doing something different. I can't say that there's anything really profound. I've tweaked things a little bit. Um, I believe it or not, this might sound crazy, but I hardly ever hunt mid days anymore. I tend to think that I get more value out of scouting and checking cameras um, during the middle part of the day rather than sitting in a stand. Uh, there there may be times when I really feel like I'm in a spot that could have deer activity at any moment, and I'll stay there all day. But part of it's just that um, I'm, I just don't sit well. <laughs> you know? I'm just not one of these guys. I, I mean, I know guys that could get in a stand an hour before daylight and get out an hour after dark and they can do it day after day after day. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, that sounds like a nightmare to me, <laughs> uh -huh. you know? So, but I, I, I really want to know what's going on, um, around me and stuff. So I'm going to, I'm going to get out and stretch a little bit so I can really be focused for the, you know, four or five hours in the morning, four or five hours in the evening and 
take two or three hours in the middle of the day off and do some more scouting or something like that. That's that's interesting. I mean, I know that Dan likes hearing that because he's always looking for excuses not to hunt all day, right? You're exactly right. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> um, Bernie, what kind of places during that time period, during your rut time period, when you're taking your midday break, what kinds of scouting is safe to do at that time of year versus stuff that's just too much of a negative? Or is there anything or at that point? Can you go in anywhere and you're not so worried about it because it's the rut? Well, I I would really avoid the bedding areas, of course, because the deer are likely to be there at that time. Um, I'm I would check cameras at uh, creek crossings and uh, field edges and on uh, you know funnels and pinch points and things like that that I've got set up. That that's where I would tend to check the cameras. Um, but you also have to realize that you've got a limited time to hunt. You're on public land where the deer somewhat acclimated to human activity and you just have to hunt more aggressively than you would if you know if i had 160 acres of well-managed deer hunting property you know i would probably hunt some of these stands once twice three times a year where you know if i'm in a um in a public land and i've got a week or 10 days to get it done i might hunt them you know three four or five times a week so you just have to be more aggressive. Uh, it, it's just necessary. Yeah. Does that apply? And I, I assume it does. But does that apply to other aspects of your of your hunting strategy at that time? So are you just are you more apt to call or rattle or decoy or just try other off the wall tactics because of that same fact? Or are you more conservative because there's more hunters and they're just less likely to be interested in those types of things because of all the pressure? I think I'm probably more likely to call um, and rattle. And I do use a buck decoy quite a bit. Uh, I have started using buck decoys more and more, actually, especially if I'm sitting up in an area like on the edge of a field where I can put that thing out there um, and make it in a visible spot. I rarely use a doe decoy alone. Um, in fact, I don't think I have for years. I, I use a doe decoy in association with a buck decoy at times. But, um, you know, since you mentioned decoys, I should just say this. I, I, I think most times just using a doe decoy is more harm than good because other does or smaller bucks come along and they look at it and they're used to knowing everybody around there and that freaks them out. and They're stomping at it. And, um, but they don't necessarily do that with a young buck decoy with one antler missing which is the way i normally set them up yeah can you elaborate on the setup um how you're typically angling it positioning it etc cetera, etc cetera? yeah I, I typically position the buck so it's facing towards the base of my tree with one antler missing and the the deer usually will circle the buck to the side with the antler missing and give me a broadside shot um, it depends on the wind direction somewhat, and I've and some bucks just want to be downwind of that decoy, but more often than not, they tend to circle that decoy um, towards what probably appears to be its weak side, not having an antler there. So if it's facing right towards you, then they start circling towards the front of the decoy, then they're going to give you a broadside shot. So that's my setup, and if I use a doe with it, I'll just park the doe about 10 yards 
or so in front of the buck, and it, it just looks like it's a rut situation where he's got her pinned down and he's standing there staring at her. And, uh, man, that, that brings them in like you're reeling them in with a fishing reel, you know. <laughs> Does, I've never had any luck with decoying. It's Would you agree it's kind of one of those high-risk, high-reward type things, Bernie? That's the way I look at it, at least. Yeah, I think so. I think there's more risk. Um, uh, the risk comes from other does. I think most of the time, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna have trouble with deer that are uh, not comfortable around your decoy, it's gonna be an old, mature doe that gives you the problem. Yeah, and they'll usually give you the most problem with a with a doe decoy. So, um, you know, there's some risk involved. But I've I've been using buck decoys more and more uh, over the years. That's that's kind of a trend for me that uh, I'm using them a lot. Um, do you, so one of the things I think about when it comes to decoys, at least for me, is that I'm much more apt to use a decoy in an area where I think the hunting pressure is pretty low, where I think there's also like a larger number of mature bucks. So I'll use a deer decoy when I'm hunting in Southern Ohio, but when I'm home in Michigan, where there's just tons and tons of hunters and there's not many mature bucks, I've always shied away from them. Do you have a similar thought process, or are you just using them anywhere? Central Minnesota, Southeast Iowa, you'll try it wherever. Yeah, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way, but decoys, calling and rattling are all kind of similar in that way, that if you've got more mature bucks and you have a more balanced buck-doe ratio, then you've got more competition for the does, and rattling, calling, and decoying just work better because that's what the deer are accustomed to. Now here, anybody every every year and a half old gets to breed a doe where I live at home, you know. So, it's like you you can rattle and call, and they just kind of look like what, you know? Who cares? Right. <laughs> um, they're not even accustomed. They, they don't even really hear a mature buck fight hardly. A lot of little bucks go through their whole lives probably never even hearing that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that's, or at least I always thought that was the case um, here in Michigan. And now I've, I've actually seen not maybe not a mature buck fight, but I've just seen more rattling or more sparring happen. And it kind of has made me wonder, maybe I should try more rattling here, but, but I always fall back to just worrying about the potential of spook deer. I don't know. Um, do you I'm think that there. is a, do you think that's a genetic or inherited thing to run to that noise even though they may have never heard it before similar to maybe a snort wheeze uh, i don't know um do it think, might Bert? be a curiosity would you i'd think it's curiosity more than anything yeah well, I, I don't know that it would be genetic I, I think i would say it's curiosity yeah yeah i think that probably makes sense and i do think that it's a it's a learned thing to a degree and i think for those bucks that live in areas where there's much more competition and that type of thing's happening much more often. I just think those those deer just become more conditioned to know that's something they need to get in on or they need to see what's going on there versus an area where there's a very sparse deer population, very few older bucks that are going to be sparring. I think in that type of area where it just happens so rarely, when a deer hears that, it's it's either what Bernie just said, maybe they do have a curiosity reaction or they have the, I don't like the sound of that, I'm getting out of here especially if it's yeah. in a spot where well, I, they're getting rattled at all the time and they just hear, and they associate that with hunters. Yeah. And the other thing is, um, deer are individuals, bucks are individuals. And I, I use the word personalities, although it's probably not the accurate term, but 
you know, one buck is just more curious or he may be just a fighter and he wants to go over there and see who's what's happened and get in on the action. Another bite buck, might, he might tuck his tail and sneak off when he hears something like that. You know, they all have different temperaments and individual traits. Yeah, very true. Have you ever, have you ever been able to use something you've learned about a specific buck's personality to kill him? I don't know if you've seen a buck several days in a row and you've learned something about him or over the course of a year or multiple years, has that ever played into an actual strategy for you? Um, I can't remember any case where it has. Uh, I, I was just thinking a couple days ago about when I lived in Iowa and the bow season opened on October 1st and I had this buck pinned down. I mean, I had him so patterned. In fact, I was bragging at the archery shop that I was going to kill this buck on opening day. <laughs> and I don't know what happened to him, but I looked like an idiot because the day before the season, he was gone and I never did find him again. So, you know, Funny how that goes. Know. Uh, yeah, but uh, so, I, you know, off the top of my head, I really can't think of anything that is a chink in the buck's armor that allowed me to kill him. Yeah, just a matter of being in the right place at the right time, especially I think on a lot of these public land hunts too, it, it's a lot harder to figure out specific bucks when you've got other people in there. You're usually only able to hunt a spot for a limited amount of time. That's a tough, a tough angle. So. Yeah, it is. You're, you're hunting areas. What you do is you're, you're trying to hunt specific spots where you think you'd have a chance to shoot a buck rather than trying to pattern an individual buck. You only got a week or 10 days to do it. It's really, really difficult. So, you know, I'm concentrating on terrain and, and, uh, you know, tracks and trails and, and sign and so forth, trying to determine where I've got a really good chance of, of having a buck come by and hoping it's a good one. Yeah. Now we, we talked about this a little bit or probably a decent bit last time. Um, but I'm always curious in like hearing like real specific examples, because I think people hear some of these general terms a lot like pinch point or bedding area. They hear these things a lot, but what does that actually look like in the real world? So my question, Bernie is, could you maybe describe for us a few of those types of areas or places that you key in on and maybe give us a specific example of a few of those spots that you found on public land that have been worth spending some time during these trips of yours. Um, that might help us, you know, better envision what we should look for ourselves. Yeah, I can speak specifically to things like pinch points and bedding areas and so forth. Uh, I've got a spot on a public hunting property in Kansas that's I've killed three mature bucks in the last four years. Um, and uh, actually five years, four years that I've drawn a tag. Um, or yeah, three bucks in five years. I've hunted it four times in five years. So, uh, and what it is, it's a river. It's a pretty good sized river with a really steep bank. And, um, then, uh, it's open fields on one side with a strip of timber that connects two other larger blocks of timber that's along the river. And it, the only reason that there's not a lot of other hunters back in there is because it's like a mile and three quarters from the road. And, uh, it's hard to get back into, well, it, um, if you guys really willing to work and put a stand in there, you know, just park your butt there and, uh, hunt mornings and evenings for a week, your chances of killing a pretty decent buck are pretty good, you know, really good. In fact, and, um, uh, it's just one of those places where you got a, you got a lot of, uh, does built bedding on the uh, hillsides to the North 
and uh, then you got a, a bottom that's like a kind of a flat. I don't know how to describe it, but it's uh, it's mostly mature timber, but it's big enough that the canopy hasn't um, you know blocked all of the undercover from the sunlight, and there's a lot of does down in that area. So it's two areas with a lot of does that are connected by a narrow strip of timber with open field on one side and a river bank on the other. And it's, you look at it and the thing is you don't really see it. If you look at it on Google earth, you wouldn't really look at that and go, wow, that's a classic pinch point. But when you get out there and you see how the deer actually move through it, then you're just like, holy cow, this is a gold mine. And it really is. Um, so that's a good example. Yeah. Especially a good example of why it's important to do that day of walking around. Like you talk about doing, because if you just looked at the Google or if you just looked at your satellite imagery or whatever it is you're looking at, like you said, you might miss that. So that's, that's an, an interesting example of that. Mm-hmm. So sorry, what were you going to say for that? Oh, I, um, I was going to also mention the bedding areas. Um, there's a, I was thinking of a specific property in Missouri that I've hunted. It's a big piece of public land. And I discovered where a lot of the does like to bed on a hillside it's pretty thick in there and then it's also an area where um they can kind of get out of the wind and they can see in front of them but the wind that's if in a northwest wind which you get a lot you know in november they can smell what's behind them and see what's in front of them and then they can duck into some really thick multi-flora rows if they get disturbed and uh that particular spot i just hunt downwind of that spot and bucks tend to circle downwind of it along the edge of a food plot that the Missouri DNR has put in there. And, uh, that, that's been a pretty good spot for me. I haven't actually killed a buck in that spot, but it's just a matter of time. Um, I've let some pretty decent ones going just because it feels so good. I keep thinking one of these days a 150 is going to walk by me. And, uh, so that, that's just another example of the type of things that you really like to find on public land. And, it's, those are things that most people don't see. Um, you know, some guy might go out there and, and see a trail where the deer are walking in and out of this um, this corn plot. The, the DNR in there has planted about 20 acres of corn, and you would circle that, and there's three or four really well-beat-down trails. Most people just set up on one of those trails, and they'll see does all day long. But if you really figure out how the bucks are working it, they're not using those trails. Yeah, that makes sense. I've always, and to your point, whenever I see something like that, like a food plot or some type of man-made opening on this public land, some type of habitat improvement, I always assume that every hunter that does come out here is going to key in on that. And so I I sometimes avoid that because I'm like, well, this is just where everyone's going to obviously try to be. But to your point, there's probably still ways to to, to utilize the information. Okay. Yes, this is still going to be a draw, but I know other hunters are going to be here and here. How can I still utilize that to, to inform where I go, just back off away from where those hunters might be or figure out what the bedding is in relation to that. Um, that's an important point. Here's the question I like to ask a lot of public guy, uh, land guys. When you find a piece of property and maybe you've, you've seen a big buck that you're kind of targeting, but there's also other hunters that are hunting it, how often does another hunter's location or their pattern affect where you're going to hunt? Basically, are, are you using where other hunters are at to establish your tree stand locations? 
Um, you mean, am I using basically hunters as a way to move deer to me? Yeah, or, or where flanking, yeah. Um, I, I can't say that I really do that. Um, I, I know that deer pattern the hunters on a property, but it tends to be more where these hunters are walking in and out and uh, not so much where, because, I mean, it's so random where hunters put up their stands. I, I walk through the woods and I go, well, there's a climber in there at the base of the tree. The guy's obviously coming back. And what is he doing here? You know? And, uh, but there's been other times when I, um, I had a tree stand, went out there before daylight, climbed up in the tree stand, got settled in and it started to get daylight. And all of a sudden I hear rattling and I'm like, Holy cow, that's really close. And I look, it gets just daylight enough. I look over and here's a guy in a tree stand 40 yards from me. <laughs> like, Holy, this is, this is a little too close. And, and another case where I found a really good spot on a ridge and I'm like, man, I got to get a stand in here after the morning hunt. So um, hunted for a few hours in the morning and I went back to my truck and, and grabbed a stand and a set of sticks and I get out there. I start trimming branches. I get about three sticks up and I hear this. <clears throat> and I walk over and here's a guy in a tree stand literally 20 yards from me. Oh, and no. he let me get the third stick up there before he even said anything. I'm like, <laughs> dude, I, and I just said, uh, you know, I'm half done here. Are you going to hunt here in the evening? And he goes, well, I, I just hunt here in the morning. I said, do you mind if I just put my stand up here? Cause I'm going to, I want to hunt here this evening. And he said, okay, <laughs> like, that was, that was weird. Uh. But, uh, <laughs> you know, um, but I can't really say that I've ever tried to pattern hunters and, and use them to, you know, try to flank them based on the way the deer are moving or something. You just don't know when they're coming and going. The thing with public land hunters, most of them just hunt on the weekends or maybe they run out to their stand a couple evenings a week after they get off work or something like that. So most weekday mornings you have the place to yourself, um, not so much on the weekends, but mornings you you normally do and then some evenings. And because most uh, local hunters are hunting after work, they're not getting very far from the road. And, uh, more and more people are getting way back in off the road. People are willing to work harder than they ever used to. So, you know, you get a mile back off the road and you run into a guy and you're like, man, I really didn't expect to see anybody back in here, but it happens more and more. Yeah. Still, those deer are mostly undisturbed though. That was what I was just going to ask is I feel like more and more people are talking about how to hunt these public places. More people are hearing get as far away from the parking lots or get into these hard to reach areas. So I was, I was curious. So it sounds like that is the case that more people are doing that. Has that forced you to change how you're hunting public land at all recently? Or is it just, you know, you're just more apt to have your, your plan screwed up, yeah, but you I, just I, persevere. Yeah, I think that's the second part of that is the way it is. I, I haven't figured out how to deal with it. Um, you know, in most lands, you can't just, you can't go any deeper. You know, you get, you get to the point where you're at the best quality habitat as deep as you can go. And then, I mean, two years ago, I walked back into a place and um, I was uh, hanging a trail camera and I saw a movement of a guy coming, the guy was coming down the trail and, uh, I, I walked up to him cause I always try to make friends with everybody. You know, I'd, I'd rather sit down with a guy and say, okay, you know, where are you hunting? How are you hunting? Um, I'd rather do that than trip over them, you know, compare notes, 
you know, I even trade phone numbers sometimes with them and say, you know, where are you going in the morning? And I've made good friends that way. But the surprising thing was about this guy is that when um, he, he, he had, he, he, he bought my book and I'm like, <laughs> he's like, yeah, I read your book. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> Darn it. That was brilliant. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. So I'm just, uh, yeah. So I'm partly responsible for it. You know, I've sold a lot of those freelance bow hunter books and anybody that likes to hunt public land, you know, just about everybody wants one and, and they're, it's going to lead you to the same types of places where I'm hunting. So there you go. You can only blame yourself, so, Bernie. <laughs> so are you saying to not buy your book? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> Please don't buy that book. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a piece of property in Southeast Iowa. If you're planning to hunt that this year, don't buy my book. But anywhere else, then that's fine. Yeah. So speaking of you ru- ruining good secrets, Bernie, um, <laughs> You, uh, you've got an interesting series that you've been putting together for North American Whitetail for a little while now, um, towards the back of their issues, where you talk about some maybe a little bit under the radar areas that are worth taking a look at from a public land standpoint. Um, and so since it's already out in the world, North American Whitetail has published it. I'm sure tens or thousands of people have, have seen that now. I think it's fair to talk about it. Can you share with us a handful of those places that you've found to be good general spots that you've recommended in those columns or, or elsewhere that maybe people aren't taking advantage of yet? Yeah, if a guy wants to go hunt um, public land where there's loads and loads of public land, um, you're not going to see 150-class deer, but you got a chance to shoot a 3- or 4-year-old 130, 135, and that's North Dakota along the Missouri River system. There is, you'll have plenty of elbow room. There's few people hunting. I mean, it's low population, tons of public land. Um, North Dakota also has a program they call PLOTS, P-O-L-T-S. It's private land open to sportsmen. And it's um, it's primarily upland bird habitat. You know, it's a lot of pheasant hunting stuff, but there's a lot of good deer hunting on it. And most people don't even think about it as deer habitat. So that's one of them I would talk, I, I would recommend, um, the whole, you know, the western part of Kentucky, and the season opens in Kentucky on the first Saturday in September. So, if you ever want to shoot a velvet buck, um, western Kentucky is really good, and there's some huge properties. The land between the lakes um, gets a fair amount of hunting pressure, but then there's also a couple other large properties that you can hunt. It's all public land, and uh, so that's another good one. You know, the walk-in hunting areas in Kansas, I mentioned North Dakota has the plots program. The one in Kansas is called Weeha walk-in hunting area. And, uh, that's also geared at, you know, quail and pheasant hunters, but there is a lot of good deer hunting property available and there's just so much of it that it spreads the pressure out pretty well. So mm-hmm. those are three that I can think of off the top of my head. And, you know, I'm working on more. I just did one on the Tennessee Tom Bigby, uh, Tom Bigby, what I think Tennessee Tom Bigby uh, property uh, in Louisiana and Georgia, and uh, that looks like a lot of fun hunt because it's almost all boat-based hunting where you have to go out to islands and stuff. Oh wow! The Mississippi River's like that too. Um, so, you know, some of these are places that I've hunted, and others are just. Um, places that Gordon Whittington, the editor of North American Whitetail, and I have sat down and said, let's do some research. Let's find out what are available at these. And and uh, we're going to do a series of about a dozen of them 
and I think I've done six or seven of them so far. And, and most of those are places I've actually hunted myself and some of them aren't, but I've just done the research, made calls to biologists and, you know, looked at, at, um, at satellite photos and stuff like that to really learn the properties. And so I can give some decent advice on how to hunt them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found them interesting so far. Um, I think it's a good idea. Although there's probably a handful of guys out there when they read these articles that are just cursing you after, after you put them out there, <laughs> not my secret yeah, spot. I, I know. Yeah. It happens. Well, they're pretty big areas. So, yeah. um, and, and realistically there, there, there isn't like there's a million people that are out there doing this. You know, it's a growing number of, of people that I call freelance bow hunters where they're packing their truck and going to a new area and, and just trying a new spot. It's a lot of fun. It's a fun way to hunt oh, yeah. and it's challenging and you'll learn a lot. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in Michigan and Pennsylvania and the East coast that they're watching the outdoor channel and they're going, man, I could never kill a buck like that where I live. Well, you can go at, to places that have bucks like that. You're just going to have to work for them. Mm-hmm, for sure. Is there anything else from a mental standpoint? for a guy that's going out to do something like that, let's say in Michigan or New Hampshire or Georgia or wherever. And let's say in a lot of these places, heavier hunting pressure, lower numbers of mature bucks, they go out on one of these hunts. Um, is there anything from a mental side that you think that this guy or girl should be keeping in mind, maybe about how to handle the hunt or the moment of truth or, or anything else? I think the most important advice I could give people would just be the first time you go, just don't get your expectations too high. Just go out there, try to learn, have fun, um, really scout hard and, and, um, you know, just go with the expectation that you're just going to try to learn the properties and learn how to be a better deer hunter, spend a whole week, just, you know, learning how to be a better deer hunter. And, um, if you shoot a buck, fine. If you don't, that's fine too. The more you go back to a property, the the better you'll hunt it because you've got a, you know, you've got a, a library of information in your mind about what you've seen in the past. So um, there's two kinds of people that like to do this. Um, some of them like to find a really good piece of property, really learn it good, and then just go back there year after year after year after year. And there's other people, which is kind of more like me, where I just get such a thrill out of seeing what's over the next hill mm -hmm. and uh, I sometimes go back to the same properties that I really like like that one in Kansas but I also you know I got a spot in western Nebraska where I was on my way to Kansas a few years ago and I put out some cameras while I was in in Nebraska and then I, I, I just put them out and then I went and hunted in Kansas and I came back and picked them up on my way back and I'm just like man I got to get out there and hunt one of these days I just can't wait to try this new spot so um, that, that'd be my advice. Just relax, have fun with it. And if it happens, it happens. And, uh, the second year you go back, you can get a lot more focused on really trying to get a buck than the first year you're just learning. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's good advice. Sp speaking of, um, speaking of the mental side of things, this is, this is just in general is something that I, that I think I'm just personally kind of becoming more and more fascinated with because with the podcast, right, we've gotten to talk to, dozens and dozens and dozens if not hundreds of different very successful deer hunters and i keep finding that there's so many different ways to go about it to kill a mature buck um so now i've been thinking through and, and reflecting back on all the different people i've talked to trying to parse out like what are the consistencies what are the things that most of these people even though they go about things very differently 
almost always do have in common? Like what are those common threads that bind together all of these most successful people? And I'm I'm developing some of my own theories, but I'm curious for you whether it be based on people you've talked to or maybe just assumptions you have. What do you what do you think are some of those key characteristics um maybe that that are most commonly found in those very most successful people? I think I would say there's two of them. Number, the, the number one and most important one is the willingness to work hard, um, the willingness to really put in the time and walk the miles and do what needs to be done. Um, that's the number one characteristic. I, you know, I just did a story uh, for North American Whitetail online. It was called Six Reasons You've Never Shot a Booner. And I've inter- I interviewed like um, four or five people who have shot multiple booners. And, um, you know, it's not pure luck. It's these guys are dedicated. They put in their time. And uh, so, you know, that would be the number one thing. And the second thing is some people are just better at absorbing knowledge and, um, you know, seeing things and filing that away and then using it the next time they see it. I, I, I don't know if there's a name for it or how to actually describe um, how this works, but some people are, are just kind of better at learning and and applying what they see to make them a better hunter. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, and, and I might um, suggest, or I might guess that maybe the biggest difference there is that a lot of guys hear stuff, but a very much smaller portion of that number of people that hear about something actually execute on it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. And, and that kind of goes back to what I just said too about the the actual you know picking up knowledge, kind of filing it away, comparing it, um, uh, observation. Some people are really good observers. Um, one guy can walk through the woods and not hardly see anything, and the next guy you know walks through and and learned a lot. And that that's partly personality, but it's also something that can be developed and learned and trained. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you have any ideas on how to get better at that? Is it just like recognizing the need to get better and just paying more attention? Or is there been anything that has helped you get better at that, that you could speak to? Yeah, I think paying more attention is a good way to put it because slow down and just really observe what's going on around you. Um, you know, I, I read books about some of these guys that are incredible trackers and, you know, the things that they notice and things like that. And, um, these guys are so detail oriented that that's my, that's one thing that I have to work on. I'm, you know, I'm just not detail oriented enough. I have to really learn and and work on being detail oriented. What, what am I seeing? What do these tracks mean? Um, you know, which, because this buck is facing this way and my trail camera picture, you know, what can I, learn from where he's coming from at what time and, and where he's going to and things like that. There's, um, you know, it's, it's just really detail oriented stuff that makes you get better and better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I'd, uh, I think I definitely have to agree with that. Um, Dan, do you have any final thoughts here as we start to wrap things up? You there, Dan? You go to sleep on us? I don't know. You still there, Dan? <laughs> yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm sorry. My dog was barking, so I had to shut my mic off. Anyway, <laughs> uh, 
over the last couple years, uh, let's say, you know, let's say five, 10 years, you know, you've started to get into a rhythm of, you know, going and doing what it is that you do. Um, what has been the number one thing that you could take away as a learning experience over the last, let's say five years as a bow hunter? Um, you know, I've been bowing for 45 years and I was for too long. I was just kind of too serious about it. I mean, that sounds crazy probably at this point, but you know, I'm 58 years old now and, and my grandsons are starting to get into bow hunting before too long here. And I'm, I'm just kind of stopping and smelling the roses more. And maybe that's not what people want to hear because they want to hear that. I'm just, I'm out there, you know, killing a huge buck every week during November or something. But <laughs> for me, I'm, I'm just, um, I'm at a point where, uh, I, I just enjoy every day that I'm in the woods more than I ever have before. And I kind of relax. I used to put so much pressure on me. Geez, I'm a writer. I'm writing columns in these magazines about how to kill these bucks and stuff like that. And I just put so much pressure on myself. I just had to perform, you know, and finally I just went, you know what? I know this stuff. I'll keep writing it and, uh, I'm just going to relax a little bit and, and have a little more fun with it. That's kind of where I'm at. And, uh, you know, it, it's brought some of the fun back into bow hunting. It's my job, but it still made it a little more fun than it was for a while. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. And it's something that I feel like, you know, Dan and I talk about that a good amount too, but it's something that I always need to be reminded of. Like every year, especially this time of year, just as we're getting ramped up, I need to remind myself of that too, because I go through the same thing, putting pressure on myself. And I think any of us who are, who take deer hunting, especially if you're hunting mature bucks, you know, we take that really seriously. If you're passionate about it, if you love it, if it's what you think about all year long, like naturally it is going to become a pressure on you because you want to see whatever it is you've been putting all this work into. You want to see that come to fruition. So it makes sense that we'll put pressure on ourselves and we'll stress about it. But if it gets to the point where it's, you know, making it not enjoyable, then why the heck are you doing in the first place? So yeah, and, and, you know, if you get to the point where you feel like you have to kill a bigger buck than the last one, eventually you, you, you know, you drive yourself into the ground because you can't, you can't keep killing a bigger buck than the last one. So, um, you know, you, you have to kind of get to the point where for me, because I have a fan base and I have people that follow my writing and, and my YouTube channel and all that, I just have, I feel like I just have to shoot a buck that most of the people that see it would go yeah i'd shoot that and that's kind of where i'm at and and i don't have to kill a 160 or 170 i love it when it happens but uh most of the time i'm just happy to get a buck and have some venison and and uh put the rack in a pile in the corner of the garage because i don't i don't mount very many of them (laughs) too much i'd rather use the money to go on another hunt so there you go it's all about being practical right Right. So is there anything, Bernie, that we haven't touched on yet that you find to be one of those glaring gaps in most hunters' knowledge base or a weakness or a mistake that you just hear about or see being made so often? Is there anything we haven't touched on like that that you want to make sure we do? The the one thing I would bring up, I think, is that there just aren't any secrets. Um you know, everybody's looking for a shortcut or a secret or something that's going to eliminate their scent. You know, there, there's value in reducing your scent. I, I go through scent control, scent reduction, um, 
and that's just one of the symptoms, I guess I would say of people that, uh, there's so many people that want to go out and shoot a big buck and they just think that there's some kind of, if I can just figure out a shortcut, um, you know, you got to do the work. You just have to put the time in, bust your hump and do the work. And, you know, you might get lucky and shoot a buck once in a while, but if you're going to consistently shoot a mature buck, you got to put your time in and, and get out there. Yeah. So that don't, don't look for shortcuts. That's my advice. Um, you know, commit to, uh, commit to the process. Yeah. I think that's just about as good of a piece of advice to end on as we could ever ask for. So, so Bernie, I know you've got a lot of stuff that you're putting out there into the world, um, for people to, to, to check out and learn from where can people find all your stuff? Um, two things, uh, actually three, because I have a, well, I have a YouTube channel. It's got three and a half million views now, so it's doing all right. And you can see the video of this buck I shot in Manitoba. I just put that up. Um, and it's bow hunting road. So if you go to YouTube and do a search for bow hunting road, you can buy my book at burningoutdoors.com. That's the freelance bow hunter book. And it's, you know, it's, it's about the traveling hunter that goes to other States and hunts public land. And uh, then the other one is this email blast that I've been putting out uh, called bucks, bulls, and bears. And I've had a lot of fun with this and I've got 38,000 people subscribing to this. Can you believe that? It's just going bonkers on me and it's called bucks and bulls and bears. I send it out every Tuesday it's just got a lot of cool stuff. It's got some articles, got some cool videos, some fun stuff, and a little humor in there too. And that just goes out every Tuesday. So if you go to bucksbullsbears.com and just sign up for that email, it's free. If you get sick of me, you can just unsubscribe. But uh, like I said, that goes out once a week and, and it's, there's a lot of public land stuff in there and uh, hunting information and then some cool videos. It's, it's a lot of fun. And that's kind of taken on a life of its own. I'm kind of surprised that it's already up, up to 38,000. Subscribers. Yeah. That's that's a lot of folks taking a look at an email. I feel like I'd have I'd feel a lot of pressure if I was sending an email. I get nervous when I'm sending one person an email to make sure I got my words right. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's cool though. That's awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include links uh, in the blog post for this podcast. I'll have links to everything you just mentioned um, so people can go check it out. So thank you, Bernie. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us about all this. All right. Appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Of course. Good luck this season. And that will do it for us today. So, big thank you to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. Big, big thanks to these partners of ours who help keep the lights on, who keep the podcast coming out, who keep the website up and going. We couldn't do it without them. So, uh, if you're looking for some new gear, check those guys out. They make some of the best stuff in the business. Moving on, of course, thanks to all of you for listening. I appreciate it. And if you're hitting the woods in the coming days, good luck out there. Be safe, have fun, and stay wired to hunt. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop that's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up. 
for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. 